Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. I was thinking, uh, as I was preparing for today, it's been a while since I've taught. I think it was back in May. Um, I was actually supposed to teach a few weeks ago, but I got covid and uh, I pass it on to my wife and two of my kids and their partners. <laughs> it just kind of spread. Um, I'm negative now, but uh, I'm still experiencing, and my wife is too, experiencing a lot of fatigue. I have a lingering cough, and so, excuse me, I have a cough drop in my mouth. Um, but I'm, I'm negative. <laughs> uh, it's been a couple of weeks now since I, I broke out of it. But it's been a good break. And I was thinking, you know, for 20 years, I was uh, a pastor of a church in La Mirada in Whittier. And I used to teach almost every week, um, and it's been great being in this church as part of a teaching team, because I'm only like going every few weeks, and that has been such a, a good rhythm. And I think it's not just a good rhythm for the teaching team, but I think for the church in general, because whenever you have a team of teachers, you know, the church isn't um, centered around the personality and passions of just one person. And it, it gives us a, a fuller like understanding of the church. And that, you know, we, as we, you know, we've mentioned before, we aren't a CEO, senior pastor kind of church. But there's a plurality here, not just with the pastors, but with the, the elders and with the various ministries. But with that um, comes, you know, um, disagreements. Um, there are times where, you know, um, we'll hear a teacher and we'll probably say, you know, that's rubbing me the wrong way. And that's fine. That's kind of the way our church is set up. And I know, like, you know, and so even today, I know that you'll probably disagree with some of the things I say. And honestly, I disagree with myself all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm going back and forth, and, and that's just the nature of it. And so none of us speak ex cathedra here. None of us speak as authoritative, as this is the word of God, and this is the way we should go. We speak from our experiences and our personal biases and as our, our wrestling with the text and with God, with faith and life. And we come into the space and hoping that as we present these things to you, there will be a, a continual dialogue in the formation of our church. And I say all that because as I was reading um, and preparing for this um, parable weeks ago, we are in the parable of the manager in Luke chapter 12. I, was, um, I pulled out at least 10 commentaries, and I realized that all 10 commentaries were actually like emphasizing or looking at the text differently. And, and I saw that there was so much room for interpretation in this parable. And so what I decided to do whenever something like that happens is I try to like zoom out of the text and try to get a fuller picture of what is going on in the Gospel of Luke. And so in this particular text, I decided to um, peruse through the first you know, few chapters of Luke. But, but I landed on Luke chapter 9 because I felt like this was a a pivotal point where Jesus experiences this, the transfiguration. And right after the transfiguration, it says that Jesus resolutely set, set out for Jerusalem. And if you've ever been on a long trip or a meaningful trip, you know, there, there's that, that preparation. There's that, like, going to that destination. And for Jesus, it was in his mind this preparation for death. It was this preparation that he knew he was about to leave, and this is the last journey he will take with his disciples. 
And so beginning in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is like intensifying his teaching. He begins to talk about the cost, the high cost of discipleship. He's beginning to like, there's an escalation on the prediction of his death. And, and, and a lot is happening. And so that's happening in Luke 9 and then in Luke 10. Um, you know, Jesus is posed with a question about how to inherit eternal life. And as Ryan shared with us last week about the parable of the Good Samaritan. If, and if you didn't get a chance to hear Ryan um, last week, you know, please watch the YouTube video because he said some really th- profound things that I think our church really needs to um, grapple with and think about. But, but the thrust of it is that what does it mean for us to be the people of faith who aren't like the Pharisee or, or the, the religious leaders who, who, who go around people who have been hurt, who have been um, beaten up, who have been robbed, and instead be like that Samaritan person who was willing to take a risk. And so Jesus highlights what, what, you know, what it means to love, what it means to be a good neighbor. What, what it means to, to live out the kingdom of God the way Jesus intended. And so that's Luke chapter 10, the, the thrust of that. And then in Luke chapter 11, Jesus begins to teach about the Lord's Prayer. And then he begins to pronounce judgment on religious leaders. Uh, and I think on this chapter, he, he like echoes, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, and how he highlights these religious leaders who were going around this person who was beaten. And, and if we didn't catch it in chapter um, 10, in chapter 11, Jesus is more explicit. And if we have Luke chapter um, 11, verse 39, Jesus addresses um, the Pharisees, and he says in verse 39, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, um, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for you, but now as for what is inside, be generous to the poor, and everything else will be clean for you. And so here Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees, you look great on the outside. You have this appearance of holiness, even perfection, of cleanliness, of righteousness, But Jesus said, you aren't paying attention to the inside. And and what's Jesus' admonition for that? Jesus doesn't tell them, like, you know, go to church, go to the synagogue, start tithing more. Um, He doesn't make all these commandments. But instead he says, but now as for you, in verse 41, be generous to the poor. Be generous to the poor and everything else will be clean for you. Think about that. This be generous isn't so much a commandment, right? He's not saying, I command you to give to the poor. He's giving us a state of being. Be generous. It's a posture. It's not just that we go about like giving money away and think that that's going to make us better people. But Jesus is asking us to reflect on the inside. Have the kind of posture that is generous to the poor. And when you focus on those things, everything else will be clean for you. And so what Jesus seems to say here is the inability 
To be generous to the poor is indicative of a heart full of greed and wickedness. Because that's what Jesus says here, right? To the Pharisees, you guys are clean on outside, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And so there is this like internal thing, this, this, this transformation that, that Jesus is asking us to consider. And so in verse 32, he continues on and says, Woe to the Pharisees because you give a tenth of the mint. And so there's like this, this outward sense of like generosity. But then he says, um, But you neglect justice and love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So it's not a bad thing to give a, to, uh, you know, to give a tithe. But you neglect justice and love of God. And then he addresses theologians in verse 46. And Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And so Jesus is not only addressing Pharisees or priests and, and teachers, but also these, these experts in the law. And, and he's actually calling out all these religious people and saying, hey, you know what? You guys are burdening people. You're forgetting the poor, the most vulnerable in society. In verse 32, you neglect the justice and love of God. And so in the next chapter, in chapter 12 of Luke, you know, we, we focused on this the last time I spoke, you know, about the rich fool, about this, this rich person that was building bigger barns and bigger barns. And then in chapter 12, verse 32, you know, he basically ends that parable by saying, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, if you look at how I've been like bringing the context of Luke chapter 9 all the way to 12, there's this thread happening, right? That Jesus' emphasis on the poor. Now, that ought not to surprise us because if you look back at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry before Jesus, or right after Jesus' baptism when he enters the synagogue for the first time and opens up a scroll, he opens it up and reads this passage that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's something that Jesus is constantly emphasizing. And it's something that we could never overemphasize. He says that the Spirit of God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, you know, he has, he has, you know, called me to do this very thing. And so that brings us to our text this morning. And I hope all of that background will help us to, to understand this text that often isn't like spoken of in church. And so in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus gives this parable. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. The servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants who master, whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night um, or towards daybreak. And then verse 40, it says, you must, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him to come. 
And so here's a very short parable. What does it mean? If you read this by itself, it's awfully confusing because there's not a lot going on there in terms of context. And that's why I had to zoom out. But basically, Jesus is saying, you know, he introduces this idea of God as master who has left his servants to go to a wedding banquet. And it sounds like this wedding banquet is a little far because the, 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 mas- the servants don't know when the master will return. And, and so they're waiting. They're waiting throughout the night and even towards daybreak. And they don't know when the master comes. And they know that they have to, like, prepare the lamp because it's dark. There's no electricity. You can't be looking around for a match. You have to be ready to go. And so Jesus highlights that, right? He says, Blessed is is the servant, blessed are those servants who are dressed and ready, whose lamps are burning. Now, what in the world does that mean? I mean, there's so much room for interpretation there. And I know, you know, most of us can, can probably relate to a job where we were working in a place and and the owner or boss leaves for a little while and all of a sudden everybody relaxes, right? Everybody isn't like doing what they're supposed to do. They're just talking or on their phones or whatever. And, and Jesus is saying it, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's people who are like watching, you know, from a distance. They're waiting. They're prepared. And so the question I was asking myself is, you know, what does it mean to wait? And, and what is this thing going on here? But one side thing I want to point out is that um, it's, it's bringing a picture that Jesus gives us of, of kind of the absence of God. I know oftentimes we talk about the presence of God and how like God is present and practicing God's presence and all of that. But in this particular situation, God is actually absent, right? And God is far. And the question is, in the midst of God's absence, what are the servants of God doing? And I know oftentimes when, uh, when it feels like God is absent, you know, and I want God to be present. When things are confusing and when there's disagreement and this difficulty, I wish God would just give us a sign from heaven and say yes to that and no to this. I mean, that would make things so much easier. I wish God would just hold our hands. I, I need God to give me an audible right now, you know, as things are constantly shifting. But God in this passage, you know, gives this um, sense of absence, and it's, it's intentional. And I love what this commentator, Justo Gonzalez, wrote. He said, we often speak of the presence of God, and rightfully so, but this other theme or metaphor of absence is also common in the Bible. Even apart from sin, God gives the human creature space, freedom to exercise its responsibility. In the story of the garden, after creating humankind and giving them dominion over the rest of creation, God lets them exercise that dominion, even though it also implies the possibility of sin. And this is absence, just as much as divine presence is a sign of love. And so there's times and even now where God seems to not be here. But Jesus is saying, as you're waiting for my return, how are you living your life? Are you like this, this good servant who is, who is waiting eagerly and being ready and being prepared? 
Or are you somebody else who kind of is, is flaky? And so Jesus, or Peter is confused about this parable, and rightfully so. So in verse 41, you know, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone else? And Jesus answers, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And so Jesus highlights what a faithful and good manager is. It's someone who is in charge of servants. And as a manager having servants below him, this manager is, is, is giving these servants their food allowance at the proper time. Listen to that. It's the master who is caring for other servants in the house. And again, it's, it's this call, right, to a person who has power and authority. And Jesus is saying, this is what it means to wait. As I'm away, I want to make sure that you're caring for the people who are under your authority, who have, you have power over. And then in verse 45, he gives the, the, the reverse of that. But suppose the, service says, the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat us other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him to come at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And so here is the, the reverse of a good servant. It's the, it's the servant who begins to beat other people. He begins to cause harm to both men and women. He begins to eat and get, drink and get drunk. It's a servant who, or a manager who acts foolishly. Now, what do these stories all have in common? Since I was like zooming out in Luke chapter 9. If you have time to ponder what these stories have in common, what I think Jesus is trying to do is Jesus is addressing power. Jesus is addressing power. Whether it's religious power, whether it's a person that has financial power, whether it's a, man, a, a manager of servants, Jesus is addressing people who have privilege and authority and access Jesus is calling out religious power as being unloving towards people who were beaten and robbed. Jesus is calling out the rich fool for being selfish with his possessions. And Jesus now calls on managers who are not treating their servants well. And so because of that, what questions should we be asking ourselves? And I know for someone who is like middle class, who has a, a, a graduate degree, who has multiple call, cars in the driveway, who is able to, to buy and eat, who, who has like, like means, it's easy for me to look at the life of Jesus and not pay attention to the fact that Jesus is always trying to call people with power and authority and money 
to pay attention to your blind spots. To pay attention. Because if you're not careful, greed and selfishness and wickedness will come. And oftentimes it will come without us even realizing it. Because outside we're doing all the right things. We say all the right words. We look great. We talk kindly with people. We give a tenth of our possessions to the church. We attend church regularly. We do all those things. But Jesus is saying through these, these stories, through these teachings, over and over and over again, pay attention to the poor. Pay attention to your status in society. Look at your location. Do you have some kind of authority? And authority, and what are you doing with it? How are you using it? Are you using it to further advance your own, your own agenda? Or are you paying attention to people under you? To people who have less than you? And I know in all of life, you know, we will have competing values. And, and Jesus isn't saying it's, it's a bad thing to go after that, that position of manager or supervisor or vice president. Jesus isn't saying it's a bad thing to, to, to like earn money and all of that. But in doing all of that, are you paying attention to the inside? Because there will always be competing values. I think it was a couple of months ago, um, my kids and my wife asked, hey, can we go to the Norwalk Carnival um, that was happening in the city of, of Norwalk, the city hall area. And I hadn't been to a, a city carnival in a long time since the kids were small. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to like, visit. And, and, you know, Abby and I brought three of our kids and a couple of their partners and it, it was just a fun time watching them ride on the rides. And, of course, Abby and I couldn't go because we get busy on those rides now. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, there was this, like, DJ. And there was, like, this, um, this stage area where people were doing line dances. And so we decided to walk over that way. And sure enough, I knew my wife would go straight into the line dancing. She loves to do line dancing. And whenever my kids see my, my wife doing um, line dances, they, they all join in. And so they were all kind of like dancing there. And me, I'm not a line dancer, so I always pretend I'm, I'll take the video. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, doing a video and everything. And so it kind of felt like a wedding. Um, and then as the line dancing ended, the, the DJ actually said, hey, we're going to have a little um, a um, competition. We're going to... We're going to give out a free jersey. And it was folded up. And, and as he was holding up the jersey, I noticed that it was a Laker jersey. And as I was looking at the numbers, it said number 34. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's a Shaq jersey. And if you know anything about me, you'll, you'll know that ever since I was a little kid, I've been following the Lakers through thick and thin. Whether it's good seasons or bad seasons, you know, it's, it's my curse. I just follow the Lakers. Um, and, and when I saw the Laker jersey, it was like, oh, my gosh, I need that jersey. I've, I've never owned a Laker jersey in my life. I'm like a Shaq fan. And the other thing that you may not know about me is I was a wedding photographer many years. And so I knew how this worked, right? I knew how the, the bouquet toss works. 
And as I was looking at how the guy was lining up and I was out, out, the crowd was forming, and the guy, sure enough, turned his back to the crowd, and I was like, I got this. You know, for, for years, I've, like, always practiced, you know, taking photos of the toss. I, I, I was looking at, at the wind factor. I was looking at, you know, whether he was left or right-handed. And so I work my way into the crowd, and I'm, like, looking at the angles and, and positioning my body like I'm a, a short point guard trying to, like, box taller people out. And I was determined to, to get that, that jersey. And he did the ceremonial, you know, fake the toss kind of thing that I, I knew was going to happen. And then when he finally threw it, sure enough, it went high up into the air. And I saw that I was positioned at the very perfect place. And I reached up and I, I jumped as high as I could. And I, and I grabbed it and I had it in my hand. And I was like, yes, I was just so overjoyed. But as I brought it down, I noticed that another hand went on it. And I was ready to like, like forcefully just take that, that thing that I had grabbed first and that I had coveted all my life, a Laker jersey that I always wanted. But as I peeked through the corner of my eye, I realized it was a small hand of probably an eight-year-old kid. And in my shock and horror, immediately, in less than an instant of a second, I, like, let go of the, the jersey, and, and my hands literally went up in the air. And I just kind of, like, like, jogged away laughing. And in my mind, I said, I will not be that guy. <laughs> that guy that I've seen countless times in baseball stadiums who, who robs the baseball from that kid, while he's, thrust, he's like thrusting it in the air and the whole stadium is like booing at him. And, and so I'm looking at the kid and he's all happy. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I dodged the bullet. Because if, if I didn't see, like, you know, the kid, I probably would have snagged it. And I would have, like, lived, like, the, the rest of my life in remorse, you know. <laughs> Maybe I would have given the jersey back to him. But I know that my kids, like, 10 years from now would have been saying, Dad, remember that time where you, you took that jersey away from that kid? <laughs> and even worse, um, you know, being a viral video of that, the Long Beach Christian Fellowship pastor <laughs> who took the jersey away from the little kid. And I remember just thinking, oh, thank God I dodged this bullet. I, like, I'm so glad I didn't do that. But it did make me reflect, you know, um, because that was such a public space. And it was, you know, it was one of the easier things to dodge. But I know in life we always have competing values. It happens every day in your workplace. It happens every day when we um, are in the streets, when we're shopping. And it's not always like as public as that Norwalk Carnival. And even though I might have like been successful in that one instance, I know um, a lot of times in life I don't prioritize the values of the kingdom of God. In this case, it was like, you know, it was obvious. Here was a 55-year-old man versus an 8-year-old kid. You see the power dynamic there. You see that, of course, the, the older guy is supposed to give it to the little kid. 
But Jesus throughout the gospel, especially the gospel of Luke, is always addressing this power dynamic. Pay attention to your location and your status and your privilege in life. Because it matters. Because there's going to be competing values. And if you don't pay attention to those things, it's going to be easy to prefer one value that gets you what you want at the cost of being able to care for a more vulnerable person. And, and I know one of the things that our church, and I'm glad you know, we're doing this, but I know we can do more of. You know, last week, Holly, you know, gave the announcement for the first time, you know, with Precious Lamb that we're having a, an event at, at the Sanofsky's house, you know, to help care for vulnerable um, children and, and moms and families. And we've, we've had David Palmer, you know, come and share about Speak Out um, for the Poor. And in the coming weeks, you know, we'll, we'll say a little bit more about Ronald McDonald House and, and how we can get involved. And, and I've been spending um, some time in, in downtown whenever I visit my two kids there. Sometimes I'll park far and I'll, I'll just sit in the streets and in Long Beach or Atlantic Boulevard. And I'll just people watch. And I'll just sit there watching and there's times where I'll have conversations with people who are houseless. And just get a sense of like what life is and listening to stories and, and trying to see what the kingdom of God looks like here. And so what does it mean for us as a church to practice this posture of not being so busy that we walk by people, but to take breaks in our life and to pay a special attention to people who are most vulnerable. I think that's the posture of Christ. I think that's what Jesus is saying and, and what it means to be ready, what it means to wait for the return of Christ, for the return of God. It's paying attention to the room, paying attention to what's happening around us. It's being intentional to leave like comforts to come down. It's, it's incarnation. Jesus coming down from the heavens to dwell amongst us. There's this photograph I came across years ago. Um, it's a photograph uh, created in 1987 by an American artist and photographer named Andrea Serrano. And it's entitled Piss Christ. And what it is, is it's this small crucifix submerged in a glass of the artist's urine. It won, you know, several awards. It was sponsored by the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, it was favorably received when it came out. Um, in fact, he received $15,000 um, from the, you know, public funds, you know, to do this work. And the National Endowment of the Arts actually gave him an additional $5,000. Um, but a couple of years after it came out, there was a couple of U.S. senators that became outraged. Um, they said this work of art is blasphemous, and it shouldn't be receiving any public funds at all. And as a result of that, this artist began to receive death threats. 
and hate mails and uh, lost, you know, any future grant money. And the work was also vandalized. And so this uh, image, you know, has proven to be provocative and polarizing. And I, I remember reading about it when it came out and just, just like, you know, having like mixed um, feelings about it. Um, but then I came across in an article by Richard Beck, who is um, a Christian a professor of psychology, and, and he writes this. Beyond the content of the photograph, what really offends people is the name. The juxtaposition of the word piss with Christ. What is blasphemous is the contact between something holy and something defiling. Piss contaminates the Christ. This is an example of the attribution called negativity dominance in judgments of contamination. That is, when the pure comes in contact with the contaminant, the pure becomes polluted. The negative dominates over the positive. The power is not with the pure, but sits with the pollutant. This is why the Pharisees see Jesus becoming defiled when he sits with tax collectors and sinners. The pollutant, the tax collectors and sinners, defiles Jesus, the pure. The negative dominates over the positive. The pollutant is the stronger force. Thus, it never occurs to the Pharisees because it is psychologically counterintuitive that Jesus' presence might sanctify or purify those sinners he is eating with because pollution doesn't work that way. But the word became flesh. God dwelt among us and still does, even in the piss, especially in the piss. The meaning of the incarnation is that God has descended into the piss of our lives and that God is stronger than that darkness. Do we believe this? Because it is so, so very hard to believe. We want to believe that our foulness and all the stuff we've experienced is the strongest thing that is there. It's so hard because it feels like blasphemy, but it is not. It is the story of the incarnation. It is the word becoming flesh. And I know in recent months and even years, LBCF has developed kind of a growing um, reputation in Long Beach as the scandalous community. As um, a community that is like, ah, we don't know what's going on there. But I think the beauty of Jesus' life is this, that Jesus was a risk taker. Jesus was willing to enter into the scandalous nature of the situation and not allow appearances to shake what he knew to be true. That is, that people mattered, that people needed to be loved, and that Jesus was willing to go into the hardest, darkest, most unholy and sinful and unrespectable places that religious community can see and say, hey, those things we should not be involved with, but Jesus says, no, those are exactly the places we need to be. This is incarnation. The holy makes us holy, not the other way around. And the way we incarnate the presence of Christ is for us to be a community that is willing to walk into the spaces 
It's being willing to get to areas that has been long neglected. And as we transition into communion, um, this is what this table represents. This future banquet table of God's love where all are welcome. Whoever chooses to come, all are welcome. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who you are. The table is open. And so I'd like to ask the people who are helping serve communion and Rob to come back up. And as we uh, prepare our hearts for communion, I'd like us to pause. Um, And if you can close your eyes right now in a moment of silence, um, think about the teachings of Jesus. Think about your position, your power, your place in society. Think about the responsibilities that God has given us. How do we use that to do good? How do we use that to no longer add burdens on people, but instead to give life? How do we wait and be ready for the coming of Christ in a way where Jesus will say, well done, well done. Dear God, we thank you for your words. And God, I pray that each of us would uh, would create space to consider what it means to be generous. Help us to also think about who in the stories of Jesus do we identify with the most. God, help us to be aware that a difficult question. And so God, would you lead us towards repentance? Would you help us to be mindful? Would you help us not to be so fixated on doing religious, outwardly good things? But to look inside, look inside our hearts. Transform us, God. Transform us by your spirit. And so, God, we come into the table and accept the sufferings, the call to discipleship, the call to carry the cross. We drink the cup. We take the bread in remembrance of you. Amen.